Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop, and tonight, as always, I'm joined by Hui Huen, a.k.a. the Alabama Woodworker. Every night. Every night, Guy. Every night that we do one of these. <laughs> How you doing? I'm fine. Thank you for asking. And Sean Walker, creator of Simple Cove. How's it going? Good. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you guys, folks, some of our perspective on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. And right now we have one level and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And I would like to say hello to some new patrons we have this time. Prashant Reddy. Leonid Matyevivev, I'm sorry, Leonid, if I said your name wrong, and Steve Krinsich. Yeah. Boy, that's real tongue twisters there. Yeah. <laughs> and we certainly hope that you guys will give us your support. So um, let's get right into it. We, you've got the first question. Okay. We seem to get a lot of these, but I think they're good because I think every time we talk about using shellac as a base coat over the top of some type of water-based or oil-based poly, um, we, we always extract a little bit more information at, at, out of these questions. So I, I, so I do believe that they're good. This is from Ron. He says, Hey, everyone. Love the show. Have heard you talk about shellac for an initial coat or two of finish, then topped with something else such as a water or oil-based poly. I know an, an only shellac finish can have clouding issues if someone leaves a drink on the surface, i.e. drink rings. I know shellac also could dissolve if an alcoholic beverage was spilled uh, and not cleaned quickly. My question is, would you still have these issues if you did one to two coats of shellac and then several top coats of water or oil-based poly, or does the poly top coat eliminate these shellac drawbacks? So uh, the answer is, is that the top coat that you're using, what you're using to build up the finish over the top of shellac, you're using shellac to sort of seal in the wood grain, uh, any tannins that might leach out, but also you're you're imparting some type of uh, color into the grain, some enhancing the look of the grain um, because once you put over that uh, water-based poly particularly or uh, water-based conversion varnish basically it's a water white finish so whatever is underneath it is what's going to what it's going to show up it's not going to amber the finish at all it, it won't do the ever popular phrase pop the grain yes exactly uh, that, that being said, oil-based polys, they tend to give you a little bit of ambering. Now, I believe there is, uh, Enduravar is a water-based poly that has an ambering effect. Am I correct on that? Yes. Yeah, it's okay. oil, oil. They call it, there's a lot of things that, a lot of companies that call it oil modified. Oil modified. Okay, so it gives it that oil look, even though it is a water-based poly. Uh, one thing that uh, I think might have been mentioned, but maybe we didn't talk about it a lot, uh, for a lot of these finishes, particularly um, water-based conversion varnishes, okay, so things that you're going to be spraying, uh, there is a mill thickness that you have to be within. In other words, how many coats of a certain finish you're laying down um, really 
uh, should not be exceeded over a certain amount. And that the back of the can is going to tell you that. And the reason I believe this is what I've been told is that putting it over raw wood or a wood that has shellac or some type of sealer on it, building that finish up, exceeding that mill thickness uh, gives it the opportunity to crack. Guy, because I know you, you've shot a lot more uh, conversion um, varnish stuff than I, uh, water-based conversion varnish than I have. I, I've never. So I believe- I, I, I've, I've never shot- put so much on where I've had to worry about it cracking. Yeah. Yeah. It's more, if, if it, if it tends to puddle like that, you get more uh, orange peel, I think then. Okay. Okay. It's just, I don't even want to call it. It's not even really orange peel. It's just, you get but that is a thing though, right? Yeah. Like you have to be under a certain mill thickness for some yeah, of these. I think they rec- recommend two to five mil. Two, that's a, that's a pretty <laughs> large spectrum. I would imagine. Yeah, um, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so whatever you're putting over top of that shellac is you're, you're sort of imparting that protective quality and the finish itself is, is adhering to the shellac. Well, I think shellac generally when you're, I believe when you're adding more shellac because it's using denatured alcohol and the finish is denatured alcohol, you're sort of melting one coat into the other. Is that correct? Is that correct in mm-hmm. how I'm saying that? Okay. Um, is there it's anything a, it's else? It's a solvent-based finish. So would the water-based or oil-based poly finish cloud up or have issues with dissolving with alcoholic beverages? And drink rings. And drink rings. If that finish that you're putting over top of the shellac does not have that issue or there aren't uh, warnings about it, then I would expect that it'd be whatever the protection of that top coat is and not necessarily the protection of the bottom coat, right? The Correct. shellac. Okay, that's what I thought. And, I, and that that's why I thought, that's why we do that, right? Is one is imparting the color and the other is imparting the protection, correct? Well, the, the, the shellac is acting, A, as a sealer mm-hmm. for the wood, and B, it also helps impart color. But the, to, to, to really answer his question of uh, rings, I don't care what finish you put on, if you put on lacquer, Mm-hmm. Or you put on water-based poly, you put a wet glass and let it sit there for uh, an evening. Yeah, It's going to leave a ring. Mm-hmm. The lacquer, the ring will kind of go away pretty quickly, usually within 24 hours, because it, it just it creates a, uh, it actually goes underneath the finish and it, 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 it goes away. I don't know. Yeah. I can't explain it, but it, it, it does work that way. The no. water-based poly is going to hang around for a couple, three days, and then it eventually will go away. Mm. So the again. shellac won't have anything to do with either one of those. I no. guess the bottom line is don't leave sweaty glasses on your tabletop, yeah. regardless of the finish. Alcoholic beverages. And- yeah. yeah. There, there, there are these things called coasters. coasters. <laughs> Use them. Yeah. That's why they make them. Sean, is there anything you wanted to add to the question? I think we covered it. Okay. Yeah, I think you guys covered it. Um, you know, I've never, anything that I've built, I've never tested leaving, you know, drinks on there to create drink rings or spilled alcohol uh, on any any surface. So I don't have any real world experience. You know, I just know that shellac is probably going to be a, a type of finish that, is going to 
crop up these issues a whole lot faster than if you were to put several coats of a water or oil-based poly on top, but that doesn't mean that it, that it won't also see these same issues. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you just probably will see them a little bit easier and well, you will see them a little bit easier in in a shellac only finish. Mm -hmm. So that's why they put the, the, uh, more durable finishes on top of the shellac. Well, with that, since we left off with you, how about, uh, we throw the question to you. Okay. This is from Mike. I sand 80, 120, 180, and 220. My boss sands 100, 120, 150, 220. So we both sand 320 after the first two layers of finish, and then 400 if any further sanding is needed. When he heard that I went from 120 to 180, he said, I don't skip grits, which doesn't make sense to me because he skips 180. It made me think about all the advice on sanding I've heard. I always heard proceed through the grits, don't rush, don't skip grits. But rarely does anyone mention a specific grit besides where they stop, which can be anywhere from 220 to 400 or even higher. So where do you start and what are all the grits that you use, Mike? So it sounds like Mike starts at 80 and his boss starts at 100, then they both go 120. And then Mike does not go to 150 like his boss does. He goes to 180 and 220. So... Yeah, I too sand and I and and I didn't own 150 in uh, orbit random orbit sandpaper size for a long time, but I sand 80, 120, 180, 220, skipping obviously 150. 150, yeah, yeah. So, but I knew going into the sanding that I was going to be skipping 150, so I always make it a priority to sand a little bit longer with 180 before going to 220, mm-hmm. and I also make it a point to look at the piece that I'm sanding to make sure that the scratch pattern looked good under a raking light because you can clearly tell a difference uh, or the scratch pattern left by 120. It's pretty obvious. So, yeah. you know, I always pay attention while sanding uh, with the 180 and I, you know, I'll sand a little bit longer. At and yeah. what? At 180. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, you're throwing me off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just trying to have a conversation with you. <laughs> well, I'm a little brain fried tonight. So oh, I'm sorry, man. It's all right. So scratch patterns left by 120 is pretty obvious. So while paying attention and sanding a little bit longer with 180, I don't feel that I need that to to go from 120 to 150 to 180. Uh, And this is just, and I'll be honest with you, that's just a long time ago when I started woodworking, I saw some videos online and Mm. that that was the the grits that they used. And, you know, it turns out great for me. I, I look at the, at the wood and make sure that when I go to 180 and get done before I go to 220, I look for any of the any of the scratch patterns or pigtails or anything like that that a 120 may leave because it's a pretty aggressive grit, mm-hmm. and you'll learn you know rather quickly that what scratch pattern is from 120 and what's from 180. And once I have the 180 and it looks good, I go to 220. I've I can't think of maybe a couple times that I've used 150, but I just I go straight from 120 to 180 to 220, and then obviously up you know. If I'm sanding between layers of, of finish, I like to go to 400. Uh, mm-hmm. I just found that that's a good a good grit, a good compromise, and it's you know it's not too fine of a grit. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I, Mike, I, I agree with your uh, your approach with the the grit levels. Uh, I know they say don't skip grits because if you do, you're just gonna have to take longer with the the, uh, the next grit that you go up to, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I do um, with yep. the 180. So. Uh, Hui, what about you? What What is your uh, grit pattern there? I skip 150, 80, 120, 180, 
220. And then, yeah, just like you, I'm either using 4 out steel wool or um, usually I use 4 out steel wool in between grits. Um, uh, between unless, grits? Yeah, if I've got, if oh, not between grits, I'm sorry, between um, oh, gotcha. finishes. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> now you got me bearing fried, man. What is, <laughs> mumbling all over here. Uh, yeah, I, I go up to 220. Yeah, I skip 150. I, and I don't know why I skip 150. Like I, 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 the only sandpaper I have is in discs or uh, 80, 120, 180, and 220. I don't have a. I do it because I'm I'm lazy, and if it's a, if that's a shortcut, I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, it, how's your how's your grip pattern, guy? Are you are, are you a skipper? Uh, it, <laughs> no. So it, it depends. What I start at depends on if I've run through the drum sander or not. Yeah. So if I've run through the drum sander, that leaves some pretty serious oh, uh, scratch scratches. Scratches. Like so I usually run the 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 drum sander at one twenty or one hundred. Mm-hmm. In which case, if I'm, I've you still got a you know drum sander does not remove the responsibility of sanding. Oh no! Right. So I usually go down a grit. So if I'm like it. You know, 120, I'll actually start at 100 on the random orbit sander. Mm. Uh, I go down a grit and I go back up. But if, let's say I'm not using the drum sander. I go 120, 150, 180. No, 220. Depends. Yeah. Depends. Depends. Yeah. If, I'm, if, I'm, if it's just a shellac-only finish, I'll go... 220 or armor seal i'll go 220 but if i'm putting down something like conversion varnish or water-based poly Mm -hmm. i stop at 180 yeah there's no reason there's no reason to go any higher than that yeah it's going to fill the gap so yeah 120 150 180 Mm -hmm. there's a lot of woodworkers that i've watched that are a little bit older that have been in the game for a long time they say going beyond 180 is a waste of time, and they're, you know they say that you're going to get the same finish than if you were to go to 220 and above, and they stop at yeah, 180. Yeah. And- I, I I would agree with that, and like I said, it really depends on what kind of finish you're putting on it. Yeah, if you're doing something like a Maloof style finish, I would go a little bit, a little bit finer because that's kind of a more in the wood type of oil finish. Hmm. Where you're yeah, not going to build up. Thick layers. Yeah, it's like it's a closer to the wood type finish, and that's kind of like shellac is too. I mean, you have to put on a lot of shellac to to build it up to where it becomes more of a film finish. But you know, if you're if you're putting down, you know, let's say you know, like like like, like this desk I just finished, I've got uh, two coats of shellac on it and three coats of conversion varnish. It doesn't matter that it, it it wouldn't make any difference at all if I went from 180 to 320, 180, 220, 400. Mm. It wouldn't make a damn bit of difference because you're not feeling the finish of the wood. You're feeling the finish of the finish. Right. Yeah. I see what you're saying. So that's just my take on it. I'm sure there's people that think uh, I'm crazy. With that, um, I think we're back to Guy. Yeah. 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 No, okay. 
We don't want to talk about that anymore. Well, I don't know. What, what else? <laughs> talk about? I mean, it may, it's it's personal preference, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, there to a certain extent, it's it's what you're comfortable with. And I mean, I I skip 150 and go up to 220. And no, you go to um, 180. I'm sorry, 180. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah I do the same. Yeah. I, again, I may own some 150, but I rarely use it. Yeah. Just, I've always done that. I guess you know, I just didn't. I don't know. That's just my. Yeah. All right. That works. So this question is from Jesse. And Jesse says, Hey guys, looking for some direction on slab style kitchen doors. Uh, I've got a small kitchen, walk-in pantry and laundry room that needs some cabinets. My wife wants smooth style modern doors. So they're easy to clean and wipe down. And she wants them painted. Swell. I've made plenty of frame and panel doors, but curious how you guys would tackle the construction of these. Is it just as easy as cutting up a sheet of MDF or plywood, laminating some edges and spraying them? Or would you make stave cores? Ooh. It's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing. Other details, these are full overlay doors. I think the tallest door might be 36 inches tall in the laundry room, but everything else is standard heights and widths for a kitchen. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work, Jesse. So what he's referring to in stave doors, if you're if you're not following along with that, that's the taking, you know, regular boards and just putting them together just Mm -hmm. like a regular glue up, like a top glue up, but you might use, you know, um, strips that aren't as wide. So if you're doing a door that's maybe 20 inches wide, you may, you you know, be doing like, you know, three or four inch planks and you glue it up and it helps, it helps reduce a little bit of uh, expansion and contraction, but not a whole hell of a lot. Slab doors. The, Reason you might want to do slam doors, slab doors, slam doors, slab doors is for two reasons. The first is the look. So it's just a, you know, it's just a flat door. There's no frame. There's no panel. There's nothing. It's just straight. The other reason you might want to do that is if you've ever tried to make a slab door, oh, I, I should talk about this too. He says, you know, use MDF or plywood. I would not use plywood. The reason is plywood will never lay flat. It just doesn't happen unless you get really good plywood and then it's going to warp anyways over time. Mm. So don't make slab doors out of plywood. Use MDF, but don't get straight MDF. Get, you can buy MDF that has veneer on it. So I would get like a, a, a maple veneer on MDF. And just uh, seal it and paint it. Yeah, seal it yeah. and paint it. Yeah. Uh, edge band it yep. and paint it. Mm-hmm. Because that MDF, you used to straight MDF, the edges will get beat up like really quickly. Yeah. It's got to have something harder over the top of it other than the paint. How what do you feel that? about using MDF with installing cabinet hardware on it though, like the hinges? Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. So my doors are, my doors on my house are MDF doors. On and your I think, house? Mm-hmm. 
Like the front door is MDF? No, no. The interior doors. Like Cabinet doors? In- no, no, no. They're, 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 they're some type of MDF. I believe they also have uh, something around the bo- borders. Yeah, solid wood. Solid wood that help uh, that help uh, you know with the hardware, but yeah, they're they're MDF doors. Huh. Yeah, the the center portions of them are. Yeah, I, I guess it's just like a frame and panel door. Yeah, right? but just MDF core. It's not a solid slab. That's yeah, it's not MDF. a solid slab. So yeah, I guess never mind then. But yeah, I would probably I, I like the idea of the MDF and not having to do the staves. Or the laminations, yeah, the thin yeah. strips of laminations. I think it it'd be less work, and you'd get the same look. Yeah, and, it, and there'd be less chance of any warping or shrinking or expanding yeah. or anything else. Have you ever built anything like that, Sean? Have you ever done slab doors before? Uh, I have not, but my parents, their home, their cabinet doors are all slab style, hmm. and it was the house was built in the seventies, I think. They're solid wood. I think that they are um, stave. They're multiple pieces glued together because I looked at them before they painted them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a chamfer all the way around them on the outside. So it looks kind of like a, a raised panel, but it's all just one slab. And I want to say that it is that they're made from maple. Um, wow. Yeah, and they have they've stayed flat. They had zero issues. They took paint well. Um, it shocked me because I was like, "Man, how, how does you know how do you prevent the movement?" But you know, since they're doing you know they did multiple smaller pieces, and they've had no issues with the doors whatsoever. Being that old, you know, fifty years old, painted them, took paint well. They look good. Um, mm-hmm. That's my only experience of ever running into slab style kitchen doors, and they came out great. They're still great. I don't know how they came out originally. <laughs> yeah, and I really wouldn't worry about the the hardware into MDF. We we at work, uh, I do a ton of slab doors, and it's all you know veneer, MDF core, mm. and you know I put a hardware on them all the time. I don't yeah. worry about it. Right so, on. all right. Uh, I guess that goes back to Hui. Yeah, yeah, this question is from Matt at Wood Miller Designs. Hey guys, this is definitely more of a beginner question, but can you elaborate on how you determine what speed setting to use on your router? Does it change depending on the hardness of the wood or the type of grain you're routing or maybe the size or particular profile of the bit? Whether you're routing in a router table or freehand plunging versus edge work, I own the DeWalt DW618PKB plunge router with speed settings between 1 and 6. I always leave it on 6 and never think twice about it. But I'm wondering if I could get better results, less tear out, less burning, if I pay more attention to the speed setting. Thank you for all the interesting information every week. Uh, (laughs) So... uh, Router speed, RPM, um, is I, I base my settings based on the size of the bit that I'm routing. Uh, and you can look this up. Um, uh, woodmagazine.com is a good place to look it up because they, they, they did an article about it. Um, but and, and that's actually the table that I use. So um, and I have it. I have it 
table stuck uh, what is it, a sticker of the um, of the speeds and the bit size stuck on the inside cabinet of my uh, of my router table because that's where I'm using the bigger bits. And to be honest, with a lot of the smaller bits, I'm kind of there with uh, with Matt. Kind of leave my my handheld router at speed six because I'm not turning like large bits on my handheld router. Um, I don't often at least. Uh, and so I usually just in my handheld router, I kind of just leave it at six, but for bits say up to like an inch, 24 RPM is the max speed. I'm not even sure if the handheld routers are going that high. I think some of them do. Um, but a one inch to two and a half inch bit diameter bit somewhere between 16 and 18,000. And again, you can look this table up. It's all it's all over the internet, and there are varying speeds here and there. But for the most part, you know, the larger the the bit, you know, you're you're decreasing the speed um, because you're the larger the bit, the faster the uh, the angular velocity is of that bit. Angular this, velocity, I believe so. Yeah. What the hell is that? <laughs> anyway. Um, no, so not anyways. I don't understand what angular. What are you talking about? Angular velocity. So the bit, at, uh, the speed at the end of the cutter, right? The larger the diameter, rim the speed. faster. Just say rim speed. Rim speed. There you go. Rim speed. Anyway, um, another <laughs> another thing to consider is that uh, you know if you're going too slow, um, and you've got uh, a bit I- inside, and you're you're going over your edge. If you're going too slow, and you're, you could get chattering. Um, if you're going too fast, um, if you're going too fast, you can get some burning, uh, you can get some tear out. Uh, so, you know, generally speaking, I, I leave my handheld router at six and I kind of worry about the router speed with the larger bits that I put in my router table. Um, but it is something that you should always pay attention to. I mean, if you're using a bearing guiding bit and, um, and you're constantly getting burning, then you know you might want to slow down your uh, your router a little bit so that you don't get that burnishing on the on the edge. Well, any rules of thumb, guys, that you can sort of add? What do you guys do? Um, do you leave your handheld router at speed six like most of my uh, handheld routing is? It you know it depends. Having had a CNC machine for a while, that obviously you, you want to change the uh, the spindle speed. Now, I don't have one of those $20 million CNC machines that you guys have, so I have to adjust it myself. So I bought one of those. It was little... only $5 million, Sean. Don't well, you got it on sale goodness. that day. You got a 50% off coupon. <laughs> you have one of those 20% off Harbor Freight coupons. Um, <laughs> you know, I bought one of those little handheld devices that can tell you the RPM, so I kind of know what one, two, three, four. I know what all those little you know settings are on that little trim router that I use in my CNC machine. Mm-hmm. Um but when it comes to using, you know, using it in a handheld or a router table, yeah, the, the larger the bit, the slower I go. If it's a smaller bit, I will turn the speed up, but there's no, there's no need to max it out. Um, mm. You know, I, I, I keep it, mine goes up to six. I think I keep it at four on the smaller bits and go slower on the larger bits. But, mm. you know, I average with all the handheld router bits that I use in my handheld router, I stay somewhere around three to four because I don't put real large bits in my mm-hmm. plunge router that right. stays in the table. So I typically stay around three to four. I listen to it as I'm making the cut. If it's struggling, I'm going too fast. It's going to 
you know, compromise the cut quality. If I'm going too slow, that's when you're going to have the burnishing and the burning. Um, you know, I, I try to, I try to keep it moving to where I'm, I'm happy with the sound. And it's just something that you'll have to experience on your own with your hand, you know, with your router. Um, but you don't want to tax it, but you don't want to go too slow. And I know that's, you know, it's not helpful, but I keep mine on about three to four. There's no need to go super, super fast. Um, and there's no, you know, I don't keep big bits in my, in my router. I keep those on the router table that then I go way slower. If it's like a raised panel bit or something like that, mm -hmm. I turn it all the way down. Like what's the largest bit you've turned it on a handheld router? In a handheld router, probably a chamfering bit, mm -hmm. nothing crazy. I mean, the diameter okay. is probably an inch and a quarter. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not a very big chamfering bit. So I don't, again, three to four is what I keep mine at. Hmm. Okay. Guy, what's the biggest bit you, you've turned in, done with a handheld router? I have a, a, a table edge forming bit that's just gigantic. I think it's like a three inch or a two and a half, two and a half inch diameter. Yeah, that's a biggie. It's, it's, a, it's, a, big, it's a big beast. And, you know, it's what you said before, Hui, it's the rim speed that counts. So the, the wider the bit, the slower it needs to go. As the, the horsepower has to do with the, the, the actual physical weight of the bit. So if you've got a big bit like that, you can't put it in a handheld router because it just doesn't have enough, unless you've got one of the big three and a quarter horsepower handhelds. But if you're using like a small compact router like the DeWalt that so many of us use for so many things, um, you're putting much smaller bits in there. You're doing edge forming and things like that. I ninety percent of the time, I keep it at its high. The 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 routers at their highest setting. Mm -hmm. The only time I turn it down is when I get into the larger bits. Anything larger than three, let's say around three quarters of an inch mm -hmm. or even three quarters of an inch and larger, I'm turning the speed down maybe one notch. Yeah. So on the router table, it doesn't have one through six. It's got little notches that I can feel under there and it, mm -hmm. it, I turn it down a notch. And in a handheld router, I might go down to five instead of six. Yeah. What that number is, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but. Um, they do correspond to something. They but. do correspond to something. And I, and I, and I wish I had a, a more definitive scientific answer, but I don't. Um, no, it's great. Uh, the, it's practical. Yeah. Just the larger the bit, the slower the speed. Yeah is the way I do it. And and most of the time I'm using bits that are three quarters of an inch or under. Yeah. So I'm usually at like the, the top Five setting six. or yeah. the, the, the setting below 90% of the time. If I've got one of those big two and a half inch bits in there or a big heavy chamfer bit, that's, and I've got a pretty wide chamfer bit cause it'll do up to, I think like an inch and a 16th or something like that. Right. Um, that I I turn on at a really at its slowest set that slowest setting, yeah. Uh, so there you have it. There you have it. Yeah, uh, I, I I think Matt that should give you plenty of information and and you know do definitely what what's comfortable for you. 
Um, but most most importantly, do pay attention to uh, the router speed with respect to the diameter of the bit. Those larger diameter bits, you're going to have to turn down the, the speed yeah. of the router. And I think buying one of those guns on Amazon, mine was dirt cheap. It's really going to help you you know, associate a number one through six with an RPM that these websites give you like the wood magazine. Otherwise you're just guessing. Well, uh, your manual should also say what those, what the one through six means. Oh, who still has those? (laughs) Well, on top of the, uh, the Porter cable, big, heavy three and a quarter Porter cable, they have it etched into the different, uh, toggle positions. Yeah, but I mean, mine is upside down inside a router table, inside a cabinet. Yeah. Well, I marked it on the door of the cabinet. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I just checked there and I click one, two, three, and then I know what that corresponds to. What about your handheld router? My handheld router, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know. I don't know. That's unacceptable. I, it, I figured you yeah, had it on a chart on your wall. No, no, no. Don't know he, it. He probably has I it on one know. of those calculator watches. Yes. <laughs> hey, don't don't be. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> Listen here. Those are fighting words. Hand, oh, handheld. Ca- wow. Listen, you you what? Are you wearing an Apple Watch? <laughs> no, I don't wear a smartwatch. I'm too oh, dumb okay. for those. I have a I have a smartwatch. I could look. Well, there. That's basically. Well, then I could a, probably own one then. That's basically a Casio <laughs> watch right there. Okay, <laughs> more high tech version of it. <laughs> All right, um, Sean, it's back to you, man. So this is from Adam. He, this is a follow-up from his last question about uh, gray streaky raindrop trails in his water-based polyfinish. Adam says, hey there, great podcasters. I just wanted to say after you kindly answered my question about gray streaky raindrop trails in my water-based polyfinish, your suggestion was that I was using a wax shellac, that I did check that shellac that I had used. Sure enough, it was a waxed bullseye shellac. I had a can of the seal coat de-wax shellac that I had finished and must have picked up regular wax stuff by mistake. I know, I know, I should mix up my own. Thanks so much for your excellent dedication and help. So that's pretty cool that he let us know what that was. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, so not sure if you're uh, still in dire need of questions, but if you are, I have one that you could use. Are any of you making woodworking holiday presents this year? If so, what are you thinking? If not... What's the best small wood-based gifts you've made for people in the past? Adam, I like this question because not only do I try to make stuff, but I like hearing what you guys are. I like to steal stuff from people. So mm-hmm. one of the things that there are a couple things that I'm planning on making, some for me, some for family, some for friends. Um, I made a cribbage board on the CNC machine for a coworker that retired that came out great. And I don't, I don't play it too often, but you know, around the holiday season, I like to, you know, the family plays games and stuff. So I think I might make one of those, um, a cribbage board. I've got a CNC file for that. So I kind of cheat in that. I don't drill, (laughs) drill all of those holes out by hand. Uh, and then, and then you got stuff like your, you know, cutting board, uh, using some cutoffs and, Another thing that I like to make and give to a fam- extended family now at this point, because I've given away so many, are coasters. Um, you, yeah. you can take like some cherry and maple, glue them up, make it look like a miniature cutting board. Uh, use a big forcer bit, drill out the center and uh, put some cork in there. I do have a YouTube video that's probably one of my first videos on YouTube. It was pretty crappy, but came out okay, I thought. Um, you know, the cork on the bottom and the cork on the inside where the 
cup sets. Those are, and they're about three eighths of an inch thick. Those are really, really handy. And, uh, plus they look good too. Um, it allows you to use some combination of different woods. Um, you know, and I have a lathe that I rarely ever use, but I want to get into turning some handles for things like, uh, pizza cutters. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think ice cream scoop. Yes. Ice cream scoop and bottle openers. Mm. And I don't know if you can hear it or not, but I'm sitting here holding a Rockler catalog that literally just came in the mail that has all kinds of, um, handmade gifts on it and to give you some inspiration. So I'm kind of looking at that. Apparently this year, uh, epoxy is still pretty big. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they have some, uh, some, uh, <laughs> epoxy related gifts that you can make, but you know, that's, I'm not really creative, you know, maybe a Bluetooth speaker here or there, but those are the kinds of things that, that I tend to make for the holiday gifts, uh, to give to family members that, you know, and then when they end up getting them, they're like, oh, the cutting board's too nice to cut on and to use. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, well, that's why I've got a drum sander, use it. And I've got to refinish a couple now though. Um, guy, do you make any holiday gifts like this or do you just hand out gift cards and hundred dollar bills? <laughs> no, it's actually, it's, this sounds horrible, but, um, I'm just as surprised as the recipients are on Christmas day when they get their gifts, what they've been given because my I, wife does all the, the Christmas shopping. I know it. <laughs> I do. I do absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's horrible. Isn't it? Oh, eh. you know, she takes care of all of that because she's wonderful. That's right. So you don't that's, make it. I mean, right? that's that's the God's honest truth. No, I don't make any gifts for anybody. I don't <laughs> do any I don't do birthday gifts, Christmas gifts. There's no gifts. My my wonderful, beautiful wife takes care of all that stuff. And she does a very good job, and everybody is always very happy. Yep. And then what, suddenly suddenly you get a hug. He's like, thanks, grandpa. I was like, for what? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh yeah, that's wonderful. I don't even know what I gave you, but okay. <laughs> And you're saying, wow, just as they are. That's nice. Yeah, that's t- I'm usually just as surprised as well. It's like you paid you spent that much money on him? Ooh. <laughs> I know where you are, guy. <laughs> so my wife does a great job of buying all of our family gifts, but I have thought about eventually one of these <laughs> days actually using all the scraps that I've accumulated and making cutting boards as like you know, pick up wedding gifts. It's like, what? You didn't get anything? Uh, grab one of those over there. I think, I think uh, Matt Cremona used to do that. Oh yeah, like, yeah. Yep. He used to make all these like cutting boards, and they just grab one and a bottle of wine. Is like, all right, we got the we got the wedding gift. Let's go. Um, which is extremely convenient. But you, of course, you have to have you know any spare time or free time I have, I won't. I want to be making furniture, but I have done the coasters before. I, you did put a really good idea in my head, Sean, about making coasters with the cork. But in all honesty, I, I made coasters one year and then that was it. I was like, I'm done with that. I don't want to do it anymore. So. Yeah. Another thing is valet boxes. I forgot about that. I have, mm. you know, I have a couple people at, at work. It seems like every year they ask me for two or three of them. And it's like, wow, every year for the past probably five years. I'm just, I guess they like, I make them cheap enough. You know, I'll batch them out, make them cheap, 30 to $50. Using, are you using your CNC for that? No, no, no. They're just okay. No, they're just a basic open mitered box with the bottom. And I use nice wood that I have scrap laying around mahogany, walnut, nice. 
and I make them thirty dollars. I make them cheap enough. $30. Yeah, that you know, I like cheap, man. You know, I want them to have some solid wood, nice little valet boxes to have, nice. and you know, I'm not there to to strike it rich off of valet boxes. <laughs> a, a lid on it too with hinges? No, 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 no. It's oh, okay. it's just an open right. top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, you know, <laughs> okay. I just figured I, I like to keep them thirty to fifty bucks, just just enough to cover the wood and maybe a little mm-hmm. bit of glue. And you know, I want them to have nicer handmade items as well. And, and then they won't pay, not to say they can't, but they won't pay, you know, $150, $200 for a valet box. Yeah, yeah. That's when I'm nice around the Christmas season. Oh, I, I, You're I like full of the Christmas spirit. Yeah, then I go back to being grumpy. Can I order <laughs> some valet boxes for you? I got some gifts. Yeah, I'll send you some pictures of them. $30. Right. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> that that's a deal. For just- I can say, I, I can I can tell them I made it. <laughs> They'll believe me. <laughs> and I do find the spray spray lacquer to be a, a great finish for these little things, not cutting yeah. boards, but you know, the, the small sp- boxes. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. dries fast. It's durable. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it, it's a good finish to use that. There's it, nothing to clean up. Yeah. Just, Deft, yeah. I think is a spray mm-hmm. lacquer that I use. Yeah. Great mm-hmm. stuff for, for these kinds of projects. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, hopefully that helps. Adam, thanks for letting us know about the, uh, gray streaky stuff in your finish that was we were we were curious about that so i think you i think you're the one that nailed that that i get lucky three or four shot. times a year yeah, yeah. that was one of my blind three. squirrel finds a nut now and then that's right <laughs> so i guess i've got the last question i believe that's so right. this is from daniel and it says hey yo i am a new woodworker and in the process this is a good question We could talk for hours about this, but we're not going to. I am a new woodworker in the process of trying to get my shop together so I can start making custom pieces. I am also a new listener. Well, thanks for tuning in, Daniel. My biggest question is that I have searched and searched for and cannot seem to find a satisfactory answer is, how do I decide what types of wood I should use or type of wood I should use for a project? I know that there's hardwood and softwood, but which is which, and how do I know which to use and when? How do I know what types of wood are paint grades or stain grade or just clear finish grade? It seems like everyone just skips over this and doesn't really explain the differences. Your help on this would be awesome and super beneficial. Thanks, Daniel. Well, Daniel, that is that is a great question, question, and we could, like I said, it gives me an idea for a book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's let's look at a few of these things here, just real quick. The difference between hardwood and softwood is easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a hardwood has leaves; a softwood does not have leaves. On the tree, it's usually uh, uh, pine cones and pine, pine cones and needles. Yep. So, like your pines, uh, fir trees, spruces, things like that. Mm-hmm. And they, the wood is softer too. But that's really the, that's the difference between hardwood and softwood. It doesn't have to do whether how hard the wood or how soft the wood. It has to do with the type, the, what kind of tree it is. How do I decide what type of wood to use? So. It's, it's actually pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to make, let's say, 
a shaker side table. Mm -hmm. Shaker side tables as a, I wouldn't say a rule, but pretty commonly were made out of cherry. Yeah. So that's a good place to start. If you want to start making custom pieces, what I'd recommend doing is getting a piece of maple, a piece of walnut, a piece of cherry, a piece of ash, you know, whatever kind of wood you want to make stuff out of, put the type of finish that you're going to put on it. Don't give the customer a choice of five different finishes. Right. Pick a finish, put it on the wood, and put it in front of the customer and say, well, what kind of wood would you like me to make it out of? <laughs> that's how, and I'm serious, that's how no, you decide what wood you're going to make it out of. Um most woods, with the exception of like maybe like pine or poplar, mm -hmm. um, you can make a tabletop out of, and they're hard enough to where it's not really going to matter if people you know like put a glass or a dinner plate on it. They're not going to dent it, mm -hmm. um, which they will with poplar or or pine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll stop there. We, what are your thoughts on like the paint grade, stain grade, clear finish? Uh, you know, yeah. these are these are choices that you know I, I I extract from the client when they're picking out a piece, right, or or figuring out what it is that they want. Okay, what kind of wood do you want? All right, the, here here's how this looks. Here's how that looks. Okay, now do you want an oil finish or do you want a water based finish? Here are the benefits for this. Here are the benefits for that. Okay. All right. Got it. Now, since we've decided, you know, that you want it paint grade and you want it painted, then I'll say, okay, here's, here are the colors, you know, what colors do you want it? Stain grade. I, I don't do a lot of stain type work, but again, the choosing for the client a certain number of things that they can choose from that, you know, you're good at providing for them and do well. Um, and coming up with that up front. Um, so for instance, uh, this conference table that I'm working on, I knew that the client wanted them out of white oak and they wanted the base quote unquote stained a certain color, um, but they wanted it dark. So I offered them, okay, here's a brown, here's a black, here's it stained, you know, somewhere in between, whatever. And here are three choices that you get to choose from. What do you want? And they choose from that kind of giving them in, in the client, if it says here, he wants to make custom pieces, giving them some direction as opposed to allowing it to just freely come from them because uh, sometimes they don't exactly know what it is that um, they want. And also you want to gear them towards some of the capabilities that you're able to do. Um, you don't want to open it up so far. It's like, well, I've never really done that before and I'm really not feeling totally comfortable doing that. But giving them some choices that you know you can execute well, but then also uh, giving them some direction. Um, does that make sense? No. Did I answer the question? <laughs> kind Sean, of. Sean, why don't you try to save it because we just, you know. <laughs> Did I just de destroy myself? <laughs> no, um, you, that, that makes sense. We. Thanks, man. How what do you got, Sean? So the question is, how do I know what types of wood are paint grade or stain grade or just mm -hmm. a clear finish grade? And I may say the same exact stuff we said, but just in a different way. Um, <laughs> these are the kinds of questions that you're going to have to ask yourself when you're going into a project. Let's say you're mm -hmm. making a cabinet and you're going to paint it. 
if you're painting it, you're not using walnut, you're not using cherry, you're going to be using a cheaper wood that can, you know, Mm. that can hold up, that's cheap, that you can paint, that, you know, that's closed, in my opinion, closed grain. What, what would what would be a good paint grade uh, oh, wood? That was literally the next thing I was going to say, and I was going to say poplar. Yep. So yeah, yeah. In, in my opinion, if you're going to paint, if you're going to make something like a cabinet or something like that that you're going to be painting, I go for cheap wood that's harder than pine, and that's going to be poplar. If you need to get just a touch harder, and there's really, really not that much of a difference, maybe alder if you can get that cheaper. Um, what, what about maple? That, that was what I was going to say next. If, oh. if you need, <laughs> you're right there with me though. If you need to get, if if you need something that's a little bit harder, you can look at maple, yeah. and it all depends on your budget, what it's going to be used for. If you need something that's harder, and you're going to paint it, start with poplar, move up to maple, depending on your budget. Stain grade. Yeah. If I'm going to say I don't like the look of just walnut or just cherry or just maple, and I'm going to stain something. The thing that I like to look at next is I'm going to choose a species that I that I don't have to work extremely hard on on blotching, blotching which mm-hmm. I mean unless you're going to be spending a lot of money you're probably going to have to deal with that anyway. So again, I'm going back to if it's just I made a bookcase for a friend of mine that was huge that holds DVDs and games. It's and I used and I stained it. I used again, I used poplar I did the blotch control and then uh, mm-hmm. all did the whole thing, stain and this and that and top coat turned out great, but it took a lot of work. I'm not sure which of the species that you can go to. It, it just all depends on the color you're going after and mm-hmm. your budget and where you can start at, you know, and if you want something, if you can handle, you know, something that's an open grain wood, um, I've had luck staining white oak, but again, mm-hmm. you're spending more money a lot of this is if it's for yourself and you're on a, and you, and you have a budget in mind and you want to stain, are you going to be saving the money on the wood? Or are you going to be, you know, saving money on the pre, the preconditioner, the stain, uh, the dyes and the stains, um, and the time to apply that and the time to apply that and right. everything that you apply staining something that you have to blotch control dyes and stains, you're going to run into the risk of messing stuff up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just have to know what you're doing. So again, if you can swing the extra money and you let, need something that's a little bit harder, white oak is is a good a good hardwood to use. And the last mm-hmm. thing is a clear finish grade. Pretty much anything in my opinion that is a cherry, a walnut, an oak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um those are the three that I use that I would consider slap some clear finish on there and it's going to it's going to be beautiful. Great. Now yeah. walnut Turns out it, it starts great, but it can get lighter and lighter and lighter in color. So you may have to slap a dye on that to keep it that dark walnut color because it does get lighter as it ages. Mm-hmm. Cherry gets darker, which is beautiful. Um, mm. Pretty much the more money you spend on this wood, that's when you know that it's going to be something you're probably going to put clear finish on to show the beauty of it. Um, and maybe the, alter the grade of finish as well, right? Yeah. So, yep. So that, you know, a a good question to ask the customer too, is what, before you get into, you know, like stains and types of wood and all that, just what color do you want the piece to be? Well, I want it to be like a darker brown. It's like, okay, you want a piece made out of walnut. Yep. That's it. And they say, well, can you take a cheaper wood and stain it to make it look like walnut? No, I'll just make it out of walnut and then it'll look exactly like walnut. 
Yeah. It takes a lot to get something to match, to make it look like Walnut without yep, seeing streaks. It's never going to look like Walnut. Um, two woods that I found that stain really well is, is Ash stains really well. And um, soft maple stains really well. Never um, tried to stain soft maple. Yeah, it does. Um, I've had luck with with oak too, white oak. I've never used. Yeah, white oak. White oak, oak takes stain real well because it's really open pore. Um, yeah. As far as finish goes, the only thing you should be asking your customer is, do you want a satin finish mm. or a semi gloss? That's it. This is an example of a satin finish, and this is semi-gloss. Unless they want it painted, then you ask the color. <laughs> yeah, then, then unless yeah. they want it painted. But That's don't cool. offer flat mm-hmm. and don't offer gloss. I agree. Because those will show up every defect. Give them yeah. two choices. And, and then every, you go to use whatever finish you want to use that's in a satin. Yeah, it does, they don't care what kind of wood you're putting on it. Yeah. The other point. thing to remember is the more choices you give a customer, mm-hmm. the less chance they're going to have of making a decision. Mm. So give them like two or three choices, three choices tops. But it's really easy. You know, I, I have a, a pretty extensive sales background. So a question to ask when you're you're looking at, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Customer and they're trying to sign a finish was, well, okay, Instead of saying, you know, we've got this one and this one, this one, what do you think? It's like, okay, we've got the 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 satin and the semi-gloss. You were looking at the, I saw that you were looking at the satin pretty heavy. So that's the one you want, right? Mm. And I'll go, yeah, uh-huh. Because they don't know. <laughs> yeah. You have to make yeah. a decision for them. Right. And leave it down to an either or, not an either or and maybe. Um, yeah, but I agree with uh, that. Uh, as far as the paint grade goes, I'm right with you know the other guys in that. Poplar is a really good choice, it mills well, it's inexpensive, and it takes paint very well. Yeah, I would, Daniel. Since you're a new woodworker, here's what I would this well, this is just the way that I think this is what I would do if I were you, is I would make three small cabinets. I would paint one, I would stain one, and I would clear finish one and learn how to apply each of these finishes because that's very important. But you're also going to see how stuff looks with stain, how it paints. Do you need a primer? Is one coat of primer good enough? What kind of primer? Uh, What kind of uh, paint are you going to use on top of? Are you going to use milk paint? Are you going to use, you know, what kind of paint are you going to use? It's going to allow you to see how the how the wood accepts the paint, how it accepts the stain, how it accepts the clear finish. You know, just three small cabinets. They don't have to be big. They can, you know, they can be small cabinets because uh, it it's also going to help you understand how far to take your sanding because staining it, you don't want to go as, uh, as high of a grit. Painting, whatever. Clear coat, whatever. These are things that you need to learn how to do. Also, in, in addition to determining which wood and species to use. You need to understand your sanding and how to apply each of these finishes. Yep. Yeah. So I think that's going to do it for this show. And we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. 
Um, if you get a chance, go on over there and do that. It really does help us in the search rankings, and we do appreciate the feedback. And also, we love to hear questions. So remember that this podcast here is to answer those questions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered, you can send it through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. I can be found at Guy's Woodshop on YouTube, Instagram. Yeah, YouTube and Instagram or woodshop or guyswoodshop.com. And where can you be found at, Sean? At Simple Cove on Instagram and simplecove.com. We? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. All right. Well, very good. I've, uh, I always enjoy talking to you guys. Same. So, mm-hmm. yep. We will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Talk to you in a couple. Bye. Bye.